morning's word from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituriae and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. Lord, sustaining it through the ages, allowing it to be translated even into this common language. We've heard it read. We ask now that by your spirit, you would open our hearts. Oh God, that you would teach us and train us, correct us and reprove us for righteousness sake. God, make us more like Jesus. Oh Lord, help us that we might take the call to repentance seriously. Father, that we may not shrink away, that we might be those who bear fruit in keeping 
with repentance. This you must do in our lives, O oh God. You must lead us on this path. So show us the way, even in your word. Father, help me, your servant, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Cartwright, an unknown preacher, some of you may not know that name, but Peter Cartwright uh, preached in the early 1800s, in the early 1800s. He was known as being a fiery frontier preacher. He was well known for his uncompromising words. People knew Peter Cartwright as the man who tells you exactly like it is, whether you want to hear it or not. Well, one day, unbeknownst to him beforehand, he had a famous guest attend his service. And right before this service was to begin, his elders came to him in the back room and they said, Peter, the president is here this morning. Andrew Jackson, General President Andrew Jackson is here this morning in this church. Please guard your words. Please do not say anything to offend him. When the time came and Cartwright stood to preach, these were the first words out of his mouth. I understand that Andrew Jackson is here this morning. I have been requested to be very guarded in my remarks. So let me say this. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sin. I don't think anyone in that room laughed. I think a hush so he records that a hush came over the crowd. Stunned silence, we might say. Well, after the service, all eyes were on how Andrew Jackson was going to greet Peter Cartwright at the door. In his autobiography, the pastor recorded this, is what Jackson said to him. I approve of your independence. A minister of Jesus Christ should fear no mortal man, in fact, if I had a few thousand such independent officers as you are, I could conquer not only England, but the world. The world is full of jellyfish. The world is full of jellyfish preachers, preachers without spines, preachers willing to compromise truth so that they can tickle ears and soothe consciences. And though you may never hear some names, you may never hear some social media posts or read them, watch them. You may never hear their podcasts. Believe it or not, there are still many faithful preachers. Preachers who rather than devote themselves to appealing to the masses, instead devote themselves to the truthful preaching of God's word and the proper care of the souls who actually sit in front of them week in and week out. Those men exist. And as they do that, you know what they're doing? They're following in a line, a spirit of the many prophets who came before them. Prophets who were more concerned with holiness than they were happiness. Prophets like the one we meet today. Prophets like John, who call people to repent. <gasps> we don't do that today. Yes, we do. 
prophets who point people to Jesus Christ and to the grace and mercy and peace that can only be found in the forgiveness that he alone offers. In our text this morning, Luke does a little bit of a fast forward for us. He fast forwards us in time from those adolescent years of Jesus that we talked about last week to the days just before Jesus begins his public adult ministry. And he does so by bringing to life the ministry of Jesus's cousin, another fiery preacher, famously nicknamed John the Baptist. Probably better to call him John the Baptizer. John, the one who baptizes. To help us understand this man, to help us understand his place in redemptive history, I want us to begin by first considering exactly who he is. If you're taking notes this morning, this will be the first of three points. You can call this point the man. The man, John. The man, John. This is not the first time we've met John. In Luke's account, we met him before he was ever born, when his birth was foretold to his father, Zechariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, back in chapter one. You might remember that Elizabeth was barren. And one day, while Zechariah was serving God in the temple, an angel appeared to him and said, your prayers are answered, and told him that Elizabeth would conceive a son. And then later in chapter one, after Mary herself hears from Gabriel that she has conceived Jesus in her own womb, do you remember where she went? She went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And do you remember what happens when these two women come face to face? Maybe I should say when they come belly to belly. Do you remember what happens? Look again, let's go to chapter one, verses 41 through 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy." He leaped for joy. After John is born, Luke records for us in 165 through 66, there when Zechariah finally gets his voice back. Uh, But he tells us that people throughout all the hill country of Judea were talking about his birth and that the hand of the Lord was with him. And then when he records Zechariah's prophecy that follows, I think it's important this morning, rather than read the whole prophecy, let's just go to verses 76 through 79. Let's see what the Lord gives to Zechariah, the word about John. I'm still in chapter one. I'm beginning in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here it's very clear for us that John is to be a prophet. 
John is to be a prophet, a, a salvation declaring prophet who will go ahead of the Lord to prepare his way, a way that will guide God's people to, as it says there in verse 79, to peace. John will guide God's people into peace. Then we read in verse 80, much like we saw about Jesus, right? One of these summary statements. Look at verse 80 in chapter one. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In his gospel account, Matthew reveals something else for us about John and his early adulthood. Evidently, he was a, a peculiar fellow, you might call him that. In Matthew 1, 4, Matthew tells us that, quote, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Okay. In other words, he stood out from the crowd, I guess, when he was actually around one. He dressed differently. He ate differently. And ladies, he wasn't likely someone you'd want to bring home to meet your parents, let alone dad. I'm pretty sure dad would have been like, who's this? Wearing camel's hair instead of the tunic. Eating locusts, honey. Well, with all this in mind, Luke knows this. is typical of Luke. Remember our investigative journalist? He sets the ministry of John differently. He sets it in its exact historic and formal context in verses one and two of chapter three. Uh, he says, and you can look there, that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It was when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. It was when Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. It was when Herod's brother Philip was Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. It was when Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. And it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Thanks, Luke. In other words, it was around AD 26 to 29. History tells us that. These have all been verified, even when they were vilified for much time, they've all now been verified as true. And it's here in this time between AD 26 and 29. And while we are thankful that Luke gives us such historic hallmarks as these, this is very uh, typical of Luke. I think Luke is doing more here than just establishing a chronology, than just giving us something to hang our hats on apologetically. I believe that by lining John up with all the, these are the heavy hitters of the age. He's lining them up right alongside. John goes right alongside without skipping a breath. This same time is when the word of the Lord came to John. By lining him up with the heavy hitters, he's actually making the greater point that there is nothing more vital. There's nothing more important than the public address of God's word to his people. Sure, Tiberius is important, and so is Pilate and the others. But what's most important is that God has filled a camel hair wearing, locust, and honey eating oddball with his spirit, and he's speaking God's word. Though the world surrounding him, the world in this day is dark, it's dangerous, it's full of uncertainty. The, the people of God seem to be powerless against the godless forces of evil. Guess what? God's word still comes. It speaks right into it and God brings salvation to his people. 
Luke wants his readers to know that John's ministry right here is the main event. It's most important. So important. That he, like Matthew and Mark before him, Luke cast John in light of God's promise that he gave to Isaiah back in chapter 40. He quotes from Isaiah 40 there. Uh, Let's look. I'm back in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Well, sort of direct. Isaiah says, a voice. Luke, Matthew, and Mark all say, the voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. There's a a few things here that Luke includes that the other writers don't, but most importantly is that last phrase. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Of God. He's not saying that everyone will be saved. He's saying all types of everyone, all types of people, right? Including the Gentiles will be saved. That's a big focus of Luke and his gospel. God's grace to not just the people of Israel, but even to the Gentiles. You see, John is the voice. John is the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord. So in the scope of redemptive history, John is the one tasked with preparing Israel to receive their Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. Such is the man, John. That's our first point. Let's move on now to our second point, and that is the message. Let's now consider the message of John. You see it very clearly in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is calling people to get ready for Jesus. By how? Repenting. By turning away from their sin. I like how Philip Ryken summarizes this in light of that quote from Isaiah. Speaking of us as sinners, being of everyone. Dr. Riken says, our lives are rocky and crooked like the wilderness of Israel. Mountains of pride need to be broken down and valleys of self-pity need to be raised so that God can come in. Christ the King finds easy entrance to any heart that is sorry for sin. To put it another way, he concludes, repentance is the on-ramp to salvation. If we want God to save us, we need to repent. We must turn away from our sin. You see, the the people of Israel had a pretty good idea what they were looking for in a Messiah. The people of Israel had a pretty good idea of what they were looking for. They wanted someone who would deal with their political problems, someone who would deal with the problems they were facing by that evil Roman government, someone to deliver them from the Caesar, from Herod, from Pilate, and the rest of the wicked rulers But God was more interested in addressing their spiritual condition. God is more interested in their hearts. God wanted to deal with their sin. So John came preaching not anti-establishmentarianism or some other form of anti-government propaganda. No, John came preaching 
against sin. John came with a message of repentance because this is what God's people always need. Listen, we always need the spiritual preparation of our hearts before anything else. Always, even us today. We may want God to do many things for us, but first things first. We need to repent. The way to get ready for what God wants to do in our lives is to turn away from sin, to confess, receive forgiveness, and repent, to turn from our sins. So this is what John preached. John preached a message of repentance. And did you notice what the people did? It says they flocked to him. They flocked to him. They came to him. The crowds came to him like crazy from all over. Maybe it was the spectacle. Like, who's this guy? Maybe it was the hope that he might be the Messiah, whatever it might be. But as they came to him, John preached repentance. And it says in verse 7, that he baptized them. Now we'll talk about this a little more next week when we come to Jesus being baptized by John, but it's important for us to see right away that John's baptism, the baptism he speaks of here, is not what we call today Christian baptism. Christian baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It's expressly commanded by Jesus in places like Matthew 28 and by the apostles. Christian baptism identifies believers and their children as part of God's covenant family. The baptism that John's doing here is actually something that was very common in that day. John's baptism is nothing new. It's actually common. It's just that it's John's baptism because he's practicing it uncommonly. You're like, what do you mean? Well, this baptism was reserved for who? Gentiles. Gentiles who converted to Judaism were expected to be baptized. They were expected to be baptized this way, to be cleansed, to be washed, so that they could then become identified as part of God's people. It's a way of declaring that they are no longer unclean. Their uncleanness is washed away. This type of baptism was for Gentiles, not for Jews. This type was not for Jews until John comes along, until John comes along. John baptizes them in this way as an expression of their uncleanness, of their need for repentance, that they are still sinful people as a sign that they desire to turn away from sin, as a reminder that their sins have been Forgiven. When you understand John's baptism in that light, it really helps you understand what happens when Jesus comes to him. What did he tell Jesus when Jesus came to him? Oh, no, 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 no. How can I do this for you? Why? Because Jesus is without sin. There's no need for Jesus to repent. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is a wonderful picture because Jesus is identifying as the new and better Adam the head of his people, the church. It's amazing to think about, but that'll help you explain why John was like, no way, <laughs> not gonna do it. But in context, as is still true, even maybe in Christian baptism, it was obvious that some were coming to John insincerely. You see it in the words of verses seven through nine, and he calls them really nice things, right? Like you brood of vipers. 
These are those who had come to get baptized, but had little interest in actually being different. They had little interest in actually living like those who were supposed to love God's law. So John tells them several things. You'll notice he tells them not to rely on their ethnicity. It's like, don't pull your Abraham card. God can raise up these, you know, from these stones people to worship him. Don't pull that card. But he tells them to do what? The same thing Jesus will tell his people later. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He warns them that the tree that does not bear good fruit, John warns them that it'll be cut down. In fact, he says the ax is there, it's laid there, it's ready to cut it down and it's gonna be thrown into the fire. Did you notice how the crowds reacted? What did they ask? Is there in verse 10? Is there in 12? It's in 14? What do they ask? What do we do? What do we do? I went through that. Now what do I do? John's recorded answers, they fall in three categories, right? He kind of speaks to the general person in verse 11. Uh, he speaks to the wealthy in verses 12 and 13. He speaks to the powerful in verse 14. Like generally, if you have more than you need, you know, it's kind of uncommon for someone to have two tunics, right? To have two pieces of clothing. Uh, so he's saying, if you've got two and you don't want someone in need, give the one to someone who needs it. Uh, food insecurity was a real problem in this time. So uh, for you to have more food than you needed for that day was kind of uncommon. But if you had it, he's saying, don't be stingy, share it. So that's his general. If you're wealthy, he kind of makes that claim. Hey, to the tax collectors, do not take more money from others than needed in order to unjustly build your wealth. You know, the, the, the tax collection business was privatized at that point. So the Romans would hire people to do the tax collecting. They'd hire a Jew to go and do it. And so they would come to you, their brother or sister, and they knew what they had to collect, but hey, I want to collect a little bit more so I can pad my pockets. Right, so they would take just a little bit more or maybe a lot more depending on your relationship to them uh, so that they could build their wealth. That's unjust. And then he speaks to the soldiers or those who are powerful. Do not oppress others through extortion, through threats, through accusations in order to expand your earthly kingdom. Abuse of power, that's not uncommon even today, is it? Uh, using the power given uh, to oppress people. All of these address justice, issues of justice. And you know, each of these responses are probably worthy of their own sermons, each one. And the thing is, they'll come back up because Jesus addresses them as well. But to suffice it to say here that John is pointing out a very fundamental biblical truth. And that is that repentance means so much more than just feeling sorry for what we've done. Repentance is more than just feeling bad about what we've done. It means turning away. The root of the word actually means to turn away, to turn away from sin and to live in obedience to God, to leave that behind and embrace this. And that's what he's calling them to do. Turn away from your sin and embrace obedience. What it requires from each person will be different depending on their own unique circumstances. But these three examples, and did you catch verse 18? And many other exhortations. 
Right? Many other words like that. It wasn't just to those three categories, but many other exhortations show how God's word can be applied to daily life and can help us see what repentance looks like in our own lives. So I'll pause here in the overall flow and just ask you this. What does repentance look like for you? What does repentance look like for us? If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that confession is necessary. You know that you're a sinner who keeps sinning. You know that you're in need of God's forgiveness. You know that that forgiveness has been secured at the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you're also called to bear fruit, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not works to further justify yourself, but rather to bear fruit for God. So what does God's word say about your sin would be the next thing to ask. We all struggle with our sin. We're all sinners. What does God's word say? If we are entangled in the sin of lying, does not God's word instruct us to be truthful? If we are entangled with lust, does God's word not tell us to purify ourselves, to flee from lust, to purify our mind, our hearts, and our bodies? If we struggle with anger, malice, gossip, does God's word not tell us to guard our tongues? If we struggle with greed and covetousness, does God's word not tell us to be generous? So on, so forth. I, 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 this is the Spirit's work. It's not mine, so I'm not going to just sit here and list a bunch of things even further. I could call out every kind of sin, my own included, but it's God who must do the work in our hearts. His mercy, his grace, his love in Christ is the foundation of our forgiveness, but as Paul says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness. It's the work of his spirit in our heart that leads us to do what we sang earlier, right? I'm gonna slay my sin by grace and grace alone. Yeah, by grace and grace alone. And so John's message then is the same today. And so I'll join in that line and say, repent, turn from your sin and embrace obedience to God. Patiently bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the message of John so all that's left this morning then is John's motive. What's John's motive? That's our third and final point, the motive of John. And we'll consider it briefly. Verse 15 is telling. It reveals that people were questioning whether uh, John was the Messiah. That's what it means by asking if he's the Christ. Is he the Messiah? John's response shows us much about his heart for his Lord. Look again at verses 16 and 17. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
You know, in that day, it was common for students to follow their teachers around, to quite literally be followers of their teacher. And by being followers, they were always looking for and being assigned to do all the menial tasks. It was said that teachers didn't really have to do much because they had all their students who would follow them and do these tasks for them. They would do almost everything except one thing. They would never untie their sandals. Students would not untie the sandals of their teachers. Even students were above such a task. That task was reserved for the lowest of the low in society. But John, he puts this in perspective by saying that he's even lower. He's unworthy of doing that task for the Messiah. It's almost as if positively saying, it'd be a great privilege if I could untie the sandals of the one who's coming, to untie the very sandals of God in the flesh. John just puts it all in perspective. His motive comes clear. He was unworthy of doing that for the Messiah. John was saying this not to draw attention to himself, but to magnify the superiority of Jesus Christ, the one who is the worthiest of all. To John, Jesus is so worthy of honor and worship that even the so-called greatest person on earth is unworthy to serve as a slave. For Jesus is greater in every respect. He goes on to say that even his baptism will be greater For Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit, he says, and he'll baptize with fire. What does that mean? Uh, John's baptism is cleansing the body, but Jesus' baptism will actually cleanse the heart. The regeneration by the Holy Spirit will make us new and will cleanse our hearts. John's baptism shows or marks the faithful ones of Israel's commitment to pursue repentance. But Jesus' baptism will test that repentance, right? And it will refine those who are truly in him. But those who aren't, they'll be burned away, cast away, and burned in unquenchable fire. John clearly understands his place in redemptive history. His motives show that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the one who's the Messiah. Jesus is the one who is the redeemer of God's people. John knows that his job, he had one job, point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. And when he does that, he does what all of us are supposed to do, particularly preachers. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke said it well and even now famously. John did it, we do it, to be content that our own names be forgotten so long as the name of Christ is exalted. Sounds familiar in a way, doesn't it? In John 3.30, The Apostle John records that John, the one who baptizes, says this. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So how amazing it is then. This is utterly amazing to think that Jesus, the most worthy, the most exalted of all, actually stooped so low as to become a servant for us. 
you understand that? Jesus stooped so low to be a servant for us. For this Jesus, as we'll see next week, he identifies with his people by going into those waters of John's baptism. Jesus knows no sin. He has no need to repent of anything. Yet he, as the representative of all God's elect, gives us a picture of what he came to do, to be counted among us, Isaiah would later say, to bear our sins and to carry our sorrows. He's counted among the people. And this same Jesus would one day untie the straps of his disciples' sandals. And he would even wash their feet. Not just take them off, but he would wash their feet. And then this same Jesus would even drink the cup of God's wrath there upon the cross where he was despised and rejected and where he would go to secure our reconciliation to God and free us from our slavery to sin. How amazing indeed is it that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for the many. You see, what motivated John is the same thing that should motivate us, to motivate you and to motivate me. And that is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus who is to come again. From our lips should be words like Apostle Paul, like he declares in Philippians 3.8. He said, I count everything as loss. Everything. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing the servant Savior, Jesus Christ, my Lord. So let us then come to Jesus again and again and again. Let's come to Jesus and confess our sins. Let's receive his forgiveness. Let us repent. Let us call upon him by his spirit to help us bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. He calls us to it. He calls us to it. And by his spirit, he accomplishes it in and through us. That should blow your mind. We are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You're God's masterpiece. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Amen? Amen.